From Nashville, Tennessee, it's the weekly Grace Church Nashville podcast. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at Grace Church Nash and use the hashtag located in the podcast description. And now here's Larry Day with this week's message. I am not known for being the most Christmas-friendly person. Uh, I wear Christmassy colors, as you can tell, black. Yeah. Um, so I might seem a little unlikely to teach on Christmas, but uh, why am I unlikely? Well, I do have a kind of stormy relationship with the American Christmas experience. I have for quite some time. I don't like Christmas sales starting in September. Okay? I don't like it. I don't like Christmas decorations going up on lawns and houses like the day after Halloween. Don't like it. By the way, uh, after service, if you'd like to join me, I can uh, issue my vow of darkness for exterior lighting uh, out in in the lobby. Um, I don't like all the attention that Santa and elves and reindeer and some kind of mystical Christmas spirit and goodwill and all that stuff gets. I don't like it. I sound like Dennis the Menace guy. Get off my lawn. (laughs) I mean, all that stuff gets all the attention while at the same time, the very word Christmas, you know, or the name Jesus at Christmas time can get you censored or banned or canceled or, you know, if you accidentally say Merry Christmas at work, you might find yourself sent to some re-education camp or something while you are given sensitivity training classes. I don't like it. Well, you're kind of some kind of Scrooge. Well, no, Scrooge didn't like Christmas, right? I'm not Scrooge. I don't like the trappings of a secular Christmas, right? Uh, We need desperately to understand Christmas. And I'm left with this gnawing feeling in the pit of my gut that seems to grow with intensity every year. And it's the realization that now more than ever, we need a savior. We need a savior. We need somebody, someone who will save us from our sins. Which is, of course, what Christmas is about. Christmas is about a savior coming into the world. It's about a virgin conceiving, not sexually, but miraculously via the Holy Spirit and then giving birth to a son. And my problems with this secular version of Christmas is that it has nothing to do with any of that. Instead, what we find ourselves doing is we drive ourselves nuts. I mean, we go insane. We spend all of our money. We get all stressed out. Half the people get depressed in this kind of elusive, impossible attempt to, you know, kind of recreate some sort of Norman Rockwell version of Christmas. Anybody remember who Norman Rockwell is? (laughs) I find my references getting uh, older and older (laughs) somehow. I don't know how it works. All right, everybody gets this. Uh, We try to recreate some type of perfect Hallmark movie version. By the way, I can't stand Christmas in July either. You know, (laughs) that drives me nuts. Uh, 
But everybody's perfect in these movies and they're wearing cardigan sweaters and drinking eggnog and there's fire blazing in a fireplace and the Christmas tree is lit perfectly, which means all the lights actually come on and stay on for the entire time, you know. And the star-crossed lovers have come back to their hometown for Christmas to save the small hometown, of course, from the greedy land developers who were there. They succeed, of course, and then they meet underneath the mistletoe and they have a chaste, perfect kiss and the girl puts her leg up like that. And <laughs> it, it snows, credits rolls, and then 30 seconds later, another one starts and it goes 24-7 for months. I don't like Christmas. <laughs> There's no mention of a word like Advent, right? Meaning coming. Uh, no hint of Emmanuel, God with us, right? You're never going to hear a word like incarnate, fixed, tangible, concrete form. It has zero resemblance. Of what Luke teaches us and Matthew teaches us about Christmas. I don't know, my references are old and I'm a dinosaur and that's okay. Uh, but there was a show, it's still on, but not like it used to be. But remember the old Charlie Brown Christmas show? Oh, yes. All right, we're on the same page now. Yes. It had that very frustrated Charlie Brown at the, re- at the very end, just going, is there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And then, of course, Linus cues the lights, and he's standing in the spotlight, and he quotes Luke chapter 2, and he's going, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. And he reminded America Year after year after year that a baby was born, a savior, Christ the Lord. I feel like Charlie Brown, okay? I'm a blockhead. Does anyone know what Christmas is actually about? I can tell you the real story of Christmas is a lot better than the Hallmark version. (laughs) It has real people. And they are living real lives. And these are messy, convoluted, confusing lives, just like ours are. They're living in real history. It's a historical fact. And one of my concerns is it only takes a generation to forget. We're there. We're there. If we don't keep telling the story... Year in, year out, year in, year out, the actual story, it it will be forgotten entirely. Our culture has forgotten it entirely. The church, uh, jury's out. We'll see. So this morning, I'm going to teach the Bible a little bit. Uh, This will not be new information for most of you who have grown up in church, but I am going to retell a small part of the story of Christmas, just one aspect, primarily about one person even. And we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 1, and Luke is one of my favorite uh, inspired writers, Uh, I think in part because he he writes as a historian, and I'm a history lover, and 
Of course, Luke himself is in the flow of history. He's not standing outside of history. He's, he's part of it. Because thousands of years before Luke actually took pen in hand and began to write his account, uh, you have the beginning of the history that he's writing. Because the Christmas story doesn't start with Luke. It really begins with Eve. It starts with Eve, that she's the first woman created. We all know who Eve is, right? Yeah. Adam and Eve are created in the likeness and the image of God. They have a dignity, a dignity. they have a, a value, they have a worth that is unique in the entire created order because of the one in whose image they are created. And God entrusts them to watch over all of creation, to steward creation. And they are given great freedom to enjoy this beautiful garden that they've, they've been given. But God told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We all know this story, I presume. They disobeyed. And God could have killed them on the spot and just started over. But he didn't. And instead, what we read in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 is where he, he has pursued them, just like he continues to pursue us. And we read about what the theologians call the proto-evangelion, meaning the first gospel. It's right here at the beginning of the book. We read about how God speaks to Satan who tempted Adam and Eve. And he, has, he says this, in, God says this in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 15. He says, I will cause hostility between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, meaning the offspring, will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. And right here, this thing they call the Proto-Evangelium, the first hint of the gospel, is right here in Genesis chapter 3. And God's answer to human sin and human rebellion and human fault is, it's right there. It's a son will come through the line of the woman, right? The son's going to battle the tempter, Satan, and the son is going to be wounded, but Satan will be defeated. A savior is going to be born, in other words. That's right here in Genesis. And from that point on, God's people looked forward to the birth of this man. This would be the birth of a son who's going to conquer sin and death and Satan and hell and the wrath of God and be our deliverer. He's going to be our savior while history rolls forward. I don't know how long it takes, 4,000, 5,000, or if you're an old earth, young earth, who knows. But you come to the time of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is raised up by God and he prophesies some more information about this son who will be born. And in Isaiah seven fourteen, we have this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, that's a clue. That's a clue. Isaiah's prophecy is basically saying, you can't miss this one, folks. You can't miss it. Uh, you're not going to miss this incredibly important birth because the Lord himself is going to give you a sign. What is the sign? The son's mother 
will be a virgin. And he's going to be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. History flows on. You go another 700 years or so. And now we're at the first chapter of Luke, 700 years later. And by the time Luke actually writes this, I know it's a long setup to read a scripture, but the time Luke writes this, the son has been born. This has come to pass. He's been born to a virgin. Uh, He lived without sin. He died in our place for our sins. He died as our substitute. Uh, He rose from the dead for our salvation. He ascended into heaven. He defeated serpent, the serpent. He defeated hell. He defeated the grave. And then he proved his resurrection by meeting with hundreds of people. And then he ascended into heaven where he continues to rule and reign over all that is. And the news of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, has spread. It traveled from a small group of people to a larger group of people. It started with the Jews. It spread to the Gentiles. And the news of this king, the news of this this Lord, this Savior, gets to the ears of a wealthy man of significance. This guy's name is Theophilus. Never name your child Theophilus. It's just clunky, okay? Theo, I guess, is it? Theophilus. There was a jazz musician named Thelonious. Thelonious Monk. That works. Anyway, Theophilus had heard about Jesus. And he was trying to decide if the things that he had heard were actually true. So he's, he's trying to decide if he should be a follower of Jesus. If should, he, should he be a Christian? And he wanted to know the facts about Jesus to help him in his pursuit. Uh, Can I just say that I love the fact that Christianity is based on facts. You know, it's based in reality. It's, It's based in historical data. It's based in reason. Okay, there's plenty of trust and faith, but it's based in fact. I love that. Thank you, Jesus. So Theophilus hires Luke. And Luke is also affluent. Um, He's educated tradition. The church tradition says that he was a physician. Uh, He's a a gifted historian. And he does a very carefully researched account for Theophilus. And now we'll start reading. This is Luke uh, chapter 1 verse 1. Luke says this. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. He's writing this account so that Theophilus and us will be certain of the truth of everything we've been taught. Now, Theophilus and Luke were both Gentiles. Um, So I'm going, well, maybe Theophilus uh, thought that since Luke didn't grow up a a Jew, you know, he didn't grow up reading the Old Testament all the time, waiting for a Messiah. Maybe Luke would be a little more objective in his investigation, you know. 
and most especially, maybe he would be more objective when it came to things like, oh, let's say uh, Jesus is born of a virgin. That's a tough one, okay? Probably tough for Theophilus. It's tough for most of us who try to comprehend it. Or did Jesus really rise from the dead? So maybe Theophilus is thinking, you know, it might be good to get a, an MD, <laughs> a doctor to look into some of these troubling uh, situations. Maybe he can explain the, the virgin birth thing or the rising from the dead thing. Maybe he can do that. So Theophilus funded Luke to go on an investigation. And Luke met with the eyewitnesses. He listened to the oral traditions. He combed through the written accounts that were already in existence at that time. They were already circulating the books of uh, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. There were other written accounts at the time as well. And he began to compile all the information that he had about Jesus. And when we read... Uh, when we read his books of Luke and Acts, what we have is an orderly, truthful, historical, factual, accurate account of who Jesus was, who Jesus is, what Jesus said, what Jesus did. Now, it probably took a couple of years for Luke to actually complete this quest. And at the end of his work, what he produced was the books of Luke and the book of Acts. So when we read some more of him in just a second, we're going to read the account of Mary. I want you to keep in mind that it's likely that Luke actually sat down with Mary and interviewed her. He's not, he's not spinning yarns here. You know, he interviewed eyewitnesses. He probably went to Nazareth, if that's where Mary was still living at the time. And what he would have encountered was not uh, the young girl that we'll read about, but he would have encountered an elderly Mary. We know she lived till uh, later in her life, but she's probably in her 70s at the time that he would have interviewed her. And he meets with her, he met with her, and he wants the details. I mean, the, the first chapter of Luke is 80 verses long, okay? He wants the details. He'd go, Mary, Mary, tell me what happened. What really happened? I've heard so many things. Tell me what, what went on. Is there anybody else that I could talk to? Is there anybody who could support uh, the evidence that you're, that you're claiming? It, it, something's talking to me. <laughs> Siri is talking to me. Who's that's weird. I wonder if that came from my pocket. <laughs> or, or, or Lord. At <laughs> uh, any rate, Luke meets with, with uh, the elderly Mary. And Mary, whose story, like I said, actually begins with, with Eve and was prophesied about in that uh, proto-evangelion that her offspring would strike the enemy's head and that her offspring would be God, you know, Emmanuel, God with us. Luke sits down with the most important, the most significant woman in the history of the world and he interviews her. And here's part of what he learned from Mary. I just like that in my brain when I read this, okay? It's, 
it's not just Charlie Brown, you know, it's, anyway, Luke 1, 26, 38, and I don't think Charlie Brown read this part. In the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he'll be called the Son of God. What's more, your your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren. But she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. Mary responded, I'm the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. That's the only part of the Christmas story, just a small part. We haven't, it's before anything actually happened. Well, a lot happens there, I guess, but it's prior to the birth. That's all I'm going to look at this time. So Mary has a relative. Her name is, is uh, Elizabeth. She's, Elizabeth is elderly. She's barren. She's married to a priest named Zechariah. Uh, but but uh, the angel Gabriel is sent from God to announce to Zechariah that his elderly barren wife is going to give birth to a son and that he's to name him John. Now, Mary at this point is unaware that Elizabeth is pregnant. She doesn't know that until the angel tells her. She has no idea that the angel Gabriel had had visited Elizabeth and and Zechariah. And now God sends this same angel to Mary to bring her good news. This is good news. Now, there's only two angels in the entire Bible who we know their names. Uh, One is Michael, one is Gabriel. Uh, If you get an angel, it's a good day. If you get Gabriel, it's a really good day. And Mary gets Gabriel. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, it says, a village in Galilee. Now, this is a really good piece of historical data. And it comes only from Luke. Uh, Nazareth is a nothing kind of place. Uh, Luke, again, uh, is giving facts that he learned from Mary. I mean, Nazareth isn't mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, Nazareth isn't mentioned in the Apocrypha. Lazarus, uh, Lazarus, Nazareth isn't mentioned in the Talmud. It's not mentioned by the ancient historian Josephus. Nobody mentions Nazareth until you come to Luke's account here and puts everything into a historical setting. I swear, Siri is in my pocket talking to me. It's not in my pocket. 
She's somewhere back here. <laughs> Driving me nuts. If you can't hear it, it's fine, but you hear it? It's, she's here somewhere. <laughs> I'm just pointing out the historian uh, Luke is giving us a little, he's setting this in a historical, actual place in a way that nobody else does. And I think the way he knows that is he talked to Mary. This is where this stuff happened. Uh, one of the reasons probably nobody else mentions it is because nobody important came from or went to Nazareth. This place is a tiny village. It's, it's a wide spot, barely, off the beaten path. I read that at the time of Jesus, it's a village of maybe 500, excuse me, village of maybe 50 to 100 people, max 200, okay? So at the time of Jesus, if, if for, say, you're going on some kind of family donkey trip or something, and your wife is going, hey, honey, let's, uh, let's not take the interstate this time. Let's go, off the, uh, let's go down the back road donkey paths of Galilee and maybe stop at an antique store or something along the way. And, oh, look, honey, we're coming into Nazareth. You know, let's pull over. Maybe we can grab a corn dog or a Slurpee or something and maybe get one of those stucky pecan rolls. I'd love those when I was a kid. And let's just stop and wipe the bugs off the donkey. Let the kids use the bathroom. That's Nazareth. It's the only reason you'd stop there. You grab a corn dog and you get back on your donkey and you hit the road and you thank God that you don't live there. Okay. Archaeologists just say that the village had one well. They found one well. Jesus and Mary would have gone to that well to haul water, which I'd just find something I could ponder for days if I was sitting at that well. I'd just sit there and stare at it. They heated their homes with wood. Their, their houses are five to 600 square feet. There's no indoor plumbing. There's no electricity. Uh, that five or 600 square feet is shared with the livestock good times. Yeah, Larry, that's just like the Hallmark, the movies that we see. It's just, just, they capture it so well. Most of the people at this time are illiterate. And yet, where does Luke say that the angel Gabriel shows up? Nazareth. Yeah. It's completely unexpected, right? It's so unexpected that when you read John 1, 46, you see Nathaniel asking a rhetorical question, right? He hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, and he asks that famous question, you know, can anything good come from Nazareth? Rhetorical question means that the answer is assumed. What's the assumed answer? Heck No. Nothing good. They got a Slurpee there that I hear is pretty good, you know, if you pull over and wipe the bugs off your donkey. But no, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Luke gives us that detail. And Gabriel goes to Nashville. Uh, Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Come, Gabriel. Uh, that could be prophetic. <laughs> the accidental prophet. Uh, Gabriel goes to Nazareth uh, to a virgin named Mary, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David. The other translation said engaged. That's not the right word. He's, she's betrothed. So Luke introduces us to Mary and Joseph. And historically, a lot has been said about them. 
And it used to be at Christmas time, before it was considered offensive, um, we had these little nativity sets. They were set up everywhere. You'd find them in, in lawns, you know, in front of businesses. You'd find them on public squares. And we would remember annually Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus and some wise men and a cow and a donkey and some sheep, right? In reality, there was so much shining and buffering and lacquering all over that, that those people that the story that Luke actually tells us here makes those people almost unrecognizable. Because you go, well, who was Joseph? We don't, we don't have a lot of details. Um, some say he was an older guy because he never gets talked about. He must have died early and maybe he was just a lot older. I, I'm not convinced that he was an older guy uh, because the... The traditions of the of the rabbis, the rabbinic tradition, had really strong views about marrying age. And Joseph was a law-abiding Jewish man. And tradition had it that 18 was an optimal age for a man to marry. If a person turned 20 and was still single, spiritually there were people who would uh, think that God had cursed that person. And legally, you could be compelled to marry Good times. <laughs> so I lean more towards a normal scenario. Uh, so he's probably younger, uh, probably a teenager. He could be 16, 17, 18 years old. He's poor. He's a carpenter. He lives in this simple little village of Nazareth. And Luke gives us a very important detail that he's from the kingly line of David. So basically what you got here is a 10th grader. I had two of those. And this trips my mind out when I think about it. Because, uh, I mean, you got a kid who wants to grow a beard. You know, basically, you know, looking in the mirror every day, checking. Nope, nothing there, nothing there. Uh, this is Joseph. He's going to marry Mary. He's going to raise Jesus. He doesn't even have a driver's license yet, Okay. And there's the woman of his dreams. It's Mary. They live in, La- in Nazareth. There's less than a couple hundred people. The marrying options are probably limited. I'm guessing. No eHarmony.com. So what about Mary? What do we know about her? Well, she seems to be the one that Luke spoke with. She's probably, probably a bit younger than Joseph. Uh, Jewish law required that she had reached the age of puberty in order to be married. I go, thank you, Jewish law. Good Lord. Um, Most scholars guesstimate that she's somewhere between 13 and 15. Maybe 16. I'll pick a number between 13 and 15. I'm going, for my image of Mary, a 14-year-old, which is all equally frightening, okay? The families, both of these families are poor. There's no mention of any type of wedding celebration or uh, betrothal party. You know, that's what any of the more affluent families would have done at that time. All we hear of is that later in, in Luke is that they go to the temple to make a sacrifice and they couldn't even afford that. These are poor folk. Fortunately, the Old Testament law uh, in the Old Testament law, God allowed the exceedingly poor to offer a few birds as a, as a sacrifice, um, which is what they did. 
So they're very poor. But nonetheless, we can assume that she's excited. She's planning her wedding prior to Gabriel showing up. Right? She's betrothed. So she, she's not shacking up with Joseph. She's not sleeping with him. They, they're going to wait until the, the wedding ceremony. And then they live together as husband and wife. And at which point they would consummate their relation physically. But not yet. They're betrothed. Betrothal is very serious deal. That's why the you know, word engagement gives the wrong concept. It's not the same as being engaged. Uh, to terminate a betrothal required a divorce, uh, a legal proceeding. That we learn about that in the in the opening pages of of Matthew's gospel. So Mary is young. She's betrothed. She's from Nazareth. More than likely, she's illiterate. Because most of the women of that time didn't have any formal education. Neither did men, for, for that matter. Her connection with God primarily would be remembering the scripture that she'd heard in synagogue. Singing to God and praying to God. We get a lot of our mental images about Mary from the Roman Catholic tradition. They kind of uh, specialize <laughs> In Mary, if you will. She's their brand. Uh, So the religious artwork that is in many of our minds about Mary is of a lady who's, you know, maybe maybe she's kind of middle-aged, young to middle-aged, you know, looking rather regal, sitting on, on a throne, holding a baby with absolutely perfect hair and a white gown, and probably both of them have halos circling around their head, Right? That's not the Mary of the Bible, okay? That's, that's religious imagery. You're going to think Mary, think peasant girl. This is a peasant girl with a peasant dress. She's hauling firewood. She's hauling water from a well. She's illiterate. She's wearing sandals. Uh, she's not sitting on a throne. At best, she's maybe on some kind of homemade wooden stool. She's a 14-year-old girl. Again, we're talking junior high. We got a junior high school girl and she's betrothed to be married, which adds a different type of imagery to my mind. Some of you have 13, 14, 15-year-old daughters. You don't trust them with a smartphone, okay? (laughs) You know, how about letting them be the mother of God the Son? Even for a weekend. <laughs> you don't want them to get their driver's license, right? That's too much responsibility, I'm thinking, you know. And yet Gabriel comes to this junior high girl and he sent to her while she's planning her wedding. And I go, thank you, Luke, for giving us this reality check. And here's what Gabriel says to her. We just read it, but I'll read it again. Gabriel shows up and he says, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you'll name him Jesus. He'll be very great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Okay, so we get the response of Mary to this announcement. 
And it says that she was confused and disturbed. Now, I don't know. It doesn't say if she's confused and disturbed about an angel, you know, showing up. uh, Or about the message that the angel delivered once he'd showed up. I'm assuming both probably were a little shocking. Okay. Other translations say that she was greatly troubled. And I can imagine she really was. Um, Because in four sentences, all of history changed right there. And she's the epicenter of it. An angel has appeared to her and said that she is favored. She has found favor with God. Favor means grace. Grace is undeserved favor. It's unearned, unmerited love. And God has favored her. Means God looked over the entire planet and he chose you, Mary. Wow. Mary, do you remember hearing all those scriptures when in the synagogue about this woman who's gonna who's gonna give birth to a son who will crush the head of the serpent? Do you remember hearing about the virgin that's gonna be that's gonna conceive and give birth to a son? Emmanuel, God with us. Remember that, Mary? It's you, Mary. It's you. And you're gonna name him Jesus. Because he's going to save his people from their sins. And we immediately get some insight into this young woman in her response to the angel. Now earlier in Luke, Luke has given us the the history of Zechariah's response to an angel when, when Gabriel gives him some equally miraculous information. You know, that his barren wife would conceive... And basically, basically, Zachariah just talks too much, you know. And he's basically telling Gabriel, to go, oh, I don't know, angel man, you know, how can I be sure about this? You know what I mean? You might not know this, you know, being an angel and everything, but I'm an old man. And my wife is barren. Do the math. You know, it ain't working. You know, his response didn't go well uh, with Gabriel and Gabriel gets struck mute. Gabriel's going, I stand in the presence of God. Shut up and name him John when the time comes. In the meantime, keep your mouth shut. But look at the response of Mary here. This isn't a response of unbelief here. This is not a response of doubt. She just asks a reasonable question. Mary asks the angel, How can this happen? <laughs> I'm a virgin. Excellent question. And we're still asking that question, and it's a legitimate question. I, I meet a lot of people who think that if, that if you've got questions, you might not be a Christian. Can you be a Christian and still have questions? Yes. Yes. Unbelief is saying, I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe Jesus. I don't believe he was born of a virgin. I don't believe he died and rose again. I'm not even sure he ever actually existed. That's unbelief. But to say, I believe the Bible is true. I believe Jesus is the son of God. I believe the accounts of his birth. I believe the life and death and resurrection and ascension and his return. I believe they're all true. But I have a lot of questions I got a lot of questions on how all this happened. 
the, the church father Anselm called that type of question. He called it faith-seeking understanding. Faith-seeking understanding. That's not unbelief. Okay? That's belief trying to understand. And that's what Mary is doing. We get, we get this glimpse of the quality of this simple peasant girl from Nazareth who has more trust than the old priest in Jerusalem did. And she isn't spouting off like Zechariah did. She's not going, hey, angel, dude, you stalking me or something? You know, I'm, you know, I'm in junior high. You know, it's not proper that there should be a grown man anywhere in my presence alone, let alone with this information. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm from Nazareth, and I might not have that fancy shimmering white robe that you got on and everything, but I do know that us junior high girls don't tend to have a lot of kids, and especially when we're virgins. So she's not going to unbelief here. She just asking a straightforward, legitimate question. How's this going to work? It's a fair question. And Gabriel responds. And he basically says, it's a miracle. You know, how can this happen? I'm a virgin. The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth had become pregnant in her old age. People used to say that she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Our God was, our God is, our God always be, will, always will be the God of the impossible. That's who he is. He creates everything, ex nihilo, out of nothing, he creates everything. He opened the womb of that elderly uh, Elizabeth. He gave Mary, a, the virgin, a son, and he took on human flesh, and he entered into human history, and he became God incarnate, God in the flesh. He's fully God. He's fully man. He rose from the dead. He can raise us from the dead. He forgives our sins. He hears our prayers. He answers our prayers. And that was true at the time of Mary. And that is still true here in December 2022 because nothing, absolutely nothing is impossible with God. The angel said that. The angel who said that he stands in the presence of God. He said that. He knows what he's talking about. And again, we see this response of that to, from this incredible young woman. In Luke 1.38, Mary responded to all of that. She goes, I'm the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Mary is amazing. I mean, this is an amazing young woman. She doesn't know much. She doesn't have a New Testament. She doesn't have information the way that, that we all do. But what bits and pieces of scripture that she has treasured and hidden in her heart has turned into absolute confident trust, absolute faith. She's unshakable. She believes what he has said. I'm the Lord's servant. Some, tradition, uh, some translations there says, I'm his handmaiden. 
a handmaiden is the lowest servant. So she's a humble servant. Folks, we need a little bit of something that Mary had. Okay. We chart out the courses of our lives and God forbid that he would like to tweak that map just a little bit. Mary had a plan for her life. You know, when we start reading about her, she's got a plan. Her plan is to say yes to the dress, marry Joseph, have a wedding ceremony that would include actually being able to fit into the dress, right? Her plan did not include being pregnant, not being married, and being called a tramp and a whore with a bastard child. But the angel said, new plan, new plan, Mary. And the junior high school girl responds, whatever the Lord plans for me, I'm good with it. I trust him with my life. I'm his servant. Joseph could have dumped her on the spot. And he considered it. Mary realizes that Joseph is not going to believe this story when she tells him. She knows what he's going to think. She knows what everybody is going to think. She knows that the, allow, that the law allows her to be made an example of. Which means they can strip her naked. They can redress her in rags. They can verbally and physically abuse her. They can call her a whore. They can tie her up in the town center and just leave her there for a while. The law would allow that so that all the other young women could see that being a fornicator and adulteress is not acceptable here in Nazareth. And Mary knows all that. But she makes no mention of it to Gabriel. Just trust. God, I'm okay with whatever you do. I'll let go of Joseph, I'll let go of my reputation. And guess what happened? For the rest of her life, they called her a whore and a slut and a tramp. Jesus heard the same thing. You, you hear it uh, obliquely from the Pharisees. In John eight forty one. they're saying, well, at least we weren't born of fornication. Where's your father? That's another way of saying, you know what, Jesus? Your mother slept around so much, you don't even know who your dad is. So, yeah, she knew this was going to happen, and it did happen. But she was willing to give up her comfort, her security, her identity, her reputation, her marriage. She doesn't even blink. She instantaneously just says, I'm the Lord's servant. May everything you've said about me come true. That's bold. Now, our our various Christian traditions seem to either make way too much of this girl or relegate her to the, you know, some kind of incidental character that we drag out at Christmas time. Of course, I'm talking about her at Christmas time. The Roman Catholic Church has gone way too far as it pertains to Mary, which may be why churches of the... the, uh, Reformation seemed to have maybe overcorrected. 
The Roman Catholic tradition says that not only was Mary a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, but she too was born of a virgin. I came up with that in the 1800s, so it's not like ancient history, but that's what the Roman Catholic Church would call the Immaculate Conception. They're not talking about Jesus being immaculately conceived. They're talking about Mary was immaculately conceived. It's not true. It's not in your Bible. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church says that just as Jesus was sinless, so was Mary. Also not true. Mary was a sinner. Uh, They say that Mary was a a co-redeemer. She was a co-mediator along with Jesus. That's not true. Uh, The Bible specifically deals with that. said there's one mediator between man and God, Jesus. Jesus connects us to God, not Mary, all right? Luke shows Mary worshiping Jesus, her son, as God. You read that in the opening chapters of of Acts. So Mary, like us, she's a sinner. She doesn't save us. You're never going to stand before God and go, thank you, Father, for saving me through Mary. Ain't going to say it. And even worse than that to me is that they teach you to pray to Mary, You know, the famous Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Say that 40 times and be on your way. Mary does not dispense grace, right? Mary received grace. That's what we read. She found favor with the Lord. So all of that overstatement about Mary is not biblical. It's not historical. It's not reported anywhere in the Bible by Luke or by anybody else. But I also want to point that out because, like I said, our Protestant traditions seem to overcorrect, and we rarely even give this, this woman, the most significant woman in all of history, who is a phenomenal lady. You can see why God chose her. We, don't, we never talk about her except one Sunday at Christmas. Seems kind of wrong. She's an excellent example. She's not perfect. But she is an amazing woman of faith. She's not an object of faith, but she's an example of faith, right? While our culture currently, the culture of our fools say, well, men and women, you know, boys will be boys, girls will be girls. Go ahead, just flirt, sleep around, live together, fornicate. Just make sure you don't get saddled with a baby because that will really keep you from changing the world. Mary would say, yeah, don't do any of that. That is all not good. Uh, Be holy, be pure. Mary was not promiscuous, uh, but she still raised a boy, and she named him Jesus. And I think she would say, that's my gift to the world, raising Jesus. But listen to this woman. She raised more than one son. One of her sons, Jesus, atoned for the sins of the world. Another one of her sons, James, pastored the church at Jerusalem that was the epicenter, the epicenter for world missions, and he wrote a book of the Bible. Another one of her sons named Jude wrote another book of the Bible, and she had at least two grandsons who led the early church after the the next generation had passed away. She was numbered among those who were there when the Holy Spirit fell the day of Pentecost. And as we've pointed out, Luke interviewed her and she made it into the scripture herself a couple of times. None of that 
was in her plan. None of it. But her response to God and her trust in God rewrote her plan. So here's what strikes me as I read this account of Mary again this week. Number one, she's extraordinary. She's extraordinary. God spoke to Mary and he reveals himself to Mary and he tells Mary about Jesus. And guess what? He does the same thing to us. God came to Mary to birth new life in her. God comes to us to birth new life in us. We don't give birth, but we are born again. And just as the Holy Spirit did a miracle in Mary, he does a miracle in us. I mean, we were, we were dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins. But with God, nothing is impossible. And the Holy Spirit wants to impart the life of God to us. I mean, our sins can be forgiven. We can be transformed. We can be reborn. We can belong to God. We can be adopted into his family. And just as Mary responded in faith and in complete trust in God, so can we. Whatever you want for me, Jesus. Whatever you want. That's what I want. Let me be your servant. That's what I want for us today. So in in the face of our times, in the face of the uncertainty where we sit in the flow of history, we have no idea what's going to happen today, tomorrow, next week. It's all up for grabs. I want us to have uh, a response that we could be a people who could peel back the facade of our secular Christmas and ask the Charlie Brown question. You know, is there anyone who knows what Christmas is about? Have you seen how Candon Cameron Bure, you know, the darling of the Hallmark movie genre and a solid Christian, she's being roasted, mocked, trying to be canceled, insulted, because she left making those Hallmark Christmas movies. Last week, there's a headline. This is from the Wall Street Journal. Candace Cameron, Candace Cameron Bure wants to put Christianity back in Christmas movies. Wow. That's weird. <laughs> Who would want to do something like that? The article said... While every major streaming platform has the Christmas genre pulling in $500 million a year in ad revenue, get this, most share an abiding reluctance to dwell on Christianity. I'd say that's an understatement. Is there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? It only takes the generation. We're living in a time where if you want to tell the Christmas story, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. 
Candace Foray wants to dwell on Jesus. And she immediately becomes a target to try to cancel. The advent cost Mary. All right? The virgin birth cost Mary. Uh, which, by the way, that's one of the things that is compelling to me that, that the virgin birth is true and accurate and believable is because who would make that up? You know, the cost associated with believing that. Now, there's some phenomenal uh, theological explanations of what all that does and how he can be fully God and fully man and sinless and all that stuff, uh, which is, again, conversations for another day. But just on the surface, you know, when you walk up to your friends and go, yeah, oh, yeah, you believe uh, Jesus is born of a virgin. You know, nuts. You're crazy. You're insane. Science denier. It cost Mary. She suffered because of the virgin birth. Joseph suffered because of the virgin birth. So did Jesus suffer from the virgin birth. And in a way, so do we because, like I said, the virgin birth continues to be mocked. But we can learn from this woman who lived the original Christmas story. Is there anybody who knows what Christmas is all about? There's a girl. Mary does. Mary lived this story and she shared the account with Luke who shares it with us. And she told Luke, the historian, that Christmas is about her baby who was born, God incarnate, whose name was Jesus because he'd save his people from their sins. As prophesied all the way back in that proto-evangelium, a son was born, a savior, a redeemer from guilt and death and hell and the wrath of God. So Grace Church, what I want us to do this Christmas is to celebrate Jesus. Okay? In the midst of, of desperately trying to recreate the trappings of the Norman Rockwell Christmas, a commercial event called Christmas, in the middle of all that mess, celebrate Jesus. And as you fight the stress and the traffic and the travel and the malls and the finances and trying to put together that thousand piece train set that you inadvisedly bought for your child and you're trying to set it up at midnight on Christmas Eve, celebrate Jesus. And if you do, You'll find a savior like no other because there is no other savior. He's the mighty counselor, the everlasting father, mighty God, prince of peace. And with him, nothing is impossible. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace Church, you can visit us online at gracechurchnashville.com and find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash gracechurchnash. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time.